Hey guys, welcome to podcast number 67. On this week's episode, I have Dr. Carlo with me today, as well as Dr. Rhiannon Burris. If you have been watching or listening to the podcast for an extended period of time, she was actually here when uh, on the podcast when she was with us during her externship uh, back in 2020 and has rejoined us. Obviously, she is a full-time veterinarian here at PAW at this point, and she also works nights. So we wanted to take some time to have her and Carlo really just kind of share insights and feedback and ideas and stories about what it's actually like being a veterinarian that works overnight. So if you like what you see or you like what you hear, go ahead and let us know by throwing us a like, drop a comment in the comment section, and if you're really interested, go ahead and hit subscribe so you can stay tuned with everything that is happening with the podcast. All right, let's get to it. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, I don't know which one this will be because I'm doing another one tomorrow with uh, Molly and Autumn, which actually goes after the one we just did with Katie and Caroline, um, just kind of talking about like staff shortages and stuff Mm. like that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about like the support staff side. So if you're listening to this and you already heard that, that happened tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So you got to be in the late 60s, I think, probably. Uh, we'll yeah, this will. Yeah, we're almost once. Once we get to 100, it's gonna be a. It's like a, like a real thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, I um, uh, Facetime your memories or whatever. It mm-hmm. was like the very first one. I think it was on either the. 10th or something of july and it was yeah. like all right guys it's coming and it was yep. just like the processing three hours oh that was back, that was back before we had like a legit <laughs> setup and it was just like don't worry this just needs to render seven times as long as the episode <laughs> i was so excited because like the, t- the first little bit the ticker moved so fast yeah. and then it just the it overheated yeah. and it just it just sat there yeah. for yeah. seven hours yeah. was that was that laptop that was my old laptop. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. that was that was two yeah. computers ago. Yeah. Plus we mixed Ted in the middle of that. Yeah, Ted, yeah. I, yep. yeah. So Ted saved us for he, a big part. <laughs> he did. We were just we were uh Bruce, you might not know, we were sending hard drives to one of my buddies who runs a, a TV studio in Michigan. Right. So we would just record it to a hard drive and then just send just it. Mail it. Yeah. And then manage to lose the hard drive somewhere in the clinic yeah. and then find it a year and a half later. Yeah, the hard drive they were sending back and forth just disappeared there was nobody knew where it was it was yeah. just gone <laughs> right right uh, sure of course uh, that happened yes yes and uh then somehow it wound up in the cable box after we moved after out we of moved. the old clinic right. and i said trevor because he was the one who was moving all the cables i was like where did you find this hard drive he was like by the cables and i was like but <laughs> But before that, <laughs> but before that, this has been a mystery for like sixteen months, right? It was because there was no reason why it should have gone missing, and then it was just gone. Yeah, it's just it just disappeared, and we thought for sure it delivered somewhere else. But anyway, so anyway, we're actually recording a podcast right yeah, now. So, you know, yeah, we're doing yeah, we're yeah. doing the Sorry. thing. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we got uh, Dr. Rian Burst with here today. Uh, yeah, in the studio. Live. She's she's done this before. Yes, it was a while Once ago. Upon a time. It was a while ago, and it wasn't with Carlo either. Nope. So that's different. Uh, was that uh, was that when you were, would it have been on an externship? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was a long time ago. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was like a full year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, more than that, almost, because that was January. January. Of, was that January 19? Man. 2020. 2020. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because yeah, yeah, we yeah. went to, that we were gone, Katie and Annie and I were gone mm. that little bit when you were here, because we were over in Michigan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I actually just went back and listened to that one a little bit the other day and just to, you know, get a frame of reference. But the idea behind this episode is you have more than a year's worth of time under your belt Mm. living that nightlife and feeling it and just being it. it. (laughs) And Carlo has 15 years of living that nightlife. Yeah, until recently, yeah. And I'm just hoping that you guys can just share stories about <laughs> how it is somehow awful and great at the same time. Cuz I don't I don't know if there's a different. if there's much yeah, maybe that's just the way to put it. It's just yeah, different. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's part of it. Um I mean, at least, like, kind of what led me into nights was that I simply couldn't wake up in the morning. I mean, I think that was, like, <laughs> the thing. And I had uh, I had worked at my first job because I was working nights. They would sometimes have me fill in. The guy also owned a day practice, so they'd sometimes have me, like, pick up relief shifts if one of the vets were going or whatever. And I was just like, I, I don't know what to do around here. It was like, it wasn't just so much the wellness appointments, but it was literally just, like, the pace of what days were, like... You know, being so, and at that point, I, I didn't really have a year under my belt. It was I was first year grad, but even then, it just seems so weird to have appointments and have like be set into the schedule. And here's this client that's coming in later, and I'm like, but can I just read a, like worry about it when they're here? You know, like, and it just it was it was so I think just naturally against the way that I functioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. At least the allure for you, you know, coming in tonight's if. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I well, feel. I remember it was more phrased of, well, you, are you interested in yeah. nights? Could, could you? Do you, <laughs> yeah. you want to give that a shot? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. But, I it, mean, yeah, it, like even back in vet school when we had like morning ER versus night ER, which even that was you're done at like 2 a.m. So like soft night. Oh, but right. Like, if you're doing days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was much happier on the night. I'm more awake at that time and it is the pace like i yeah i just don't want to sit down and look at the schedule for the day and be like oh we have this ear recheck coming right in at right 2 p.m i better get my lunch before that she's a right like, yeah 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 whatever it is patient client long-term client it's, it's not to say that having long-term clients are a problem by any means but no. it's they they carry you know there is again even an expectation within those consultations about you know well <clears throat> i've been coming here for uh you know the last 20 years and this is my expectation when i come in and you know then as a and i think that's actually what i found as being a little off-putting is uh again coming into that environment where on nights it's just you just found through it's just here's what it is you know this is a more serious case this isn't this is a uti this is an ear this is hit by car um but it's like there's almost like more of a performance you have to put on during the day if you're in kind of these pre-scheduled appointments because like oh this is mrs jones Mm -hmm. and she's been coming for 20 years with all of her cats and all these things and it's just like you know so you i I actually i think for me another reason why it didn't really fit was the it almost felt like there was a loss of self 
in that process, you know, because you had to sort of like be who they wanted you to be. And usually they wanted you to be who the other vet was that they've been seeing for 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that, again, it's just, you know, how do you how do you function in that world other than like, oh, I guess this is just what we do every time. So I, I, I saw a lot or I felt a lot more. Uh, sort of monotony in that um, and just sort of more like constraining um, you know which again I think is probably um, alluring to some you know if they if it you know I don't want to say that there's less thought involved but it's like yeah it's just it's just it's a different way of having to go through the consultation because you're you're playing not just the role of a veterinarian but also kind of a veterinarian that you want aren't if yeah. it's not the same personality well, it, it's a it's a pair of shoes that's safer because they're worn in i mean you're not yeah. starting from I essentially see, sure. square one yeah so like if you are looking for more of like a turnkey relationship with a client that it's probably safer during the day it's probably safer during appointments it's probably safer with clients that are, have been around longer because they're just they're kind of used to the way things operate. I mean, we even see that around here. Not necessarily sure. that we tell our doctors to behave any certain uh, or yeah. specific way, but um, clients just get more used to the way that things go. Um, but then when you even go that one step further and it's just like, no, this is how you talk to this lady. Yeah. And like you have like <laughs> communication yeah, notes yeah, yeah. in your medical record about yeah. the, like, the, the clients, which may or may not be a thing. I could definitely see it being a possibility. Um, yeah. but if you're, <clears throat> you know, I guess the question for me in that is what are you, what are you serving? Are you trying to just limit a headache or are you altering the way you communicate for the sake of the patient? Because if it's more self-serving, if it's more client-serving, if it's invoice-serving, yeah. that gets a little bit weird. But if it's like, you know, because I mean, you guys probably have to, Carlo, you don't do it nearly as much anymore, if you ever did. But the uh, adaptation of the way you communicate, you know, over, you know, at, from, at 2 a.m., yeah. client by client, because sometimes you just got to... Sometimes you just got to be in a little bit of an enigma to keep the wheel spinning too, yeah. I would guess. Yeah. Uh, but that's more, you know, in the moment, I guess. But I guess, because you and I talked about that a little bit, about like, I think it was a, probably a few months ago, about like kind of that communication shift. And then you immediately went to, I've learned how to throw the hammer down a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess how has... It, it, what what is communication with clients in the middle of the night? Expl I've never even my well, not on the floor, but yeah. like what is it at four a.m.? It's different. It depends on what energy that caregiver is bringing in. Because yep. some people are just so damn tired they don't even know where you're at, and you're like, all right, well I can't be as as strong and really a little more hand holding. They they don't know where they are even sitting right now. Yeah. Um, versus they think like it, it took a, a lot or they're just really mad that it took them this long to get to this point and it's a lot of like now we're resetting expectations because it's just me and you have me so it is what it is right now mm -hmm. um or swinging the hammer a little bit more of like this is now really important we cannot just be fussing around you cannot wait until the morning to call your brother whoever to talk this over like mm. We need an immediate answer. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that you are unprepared and tired. Like, I, I, I really empathize with that. Mm -hmm. But now's the time to start get shit going. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that it's, um, 
at least what I've found with that idea is like you said, you, you, you probably don't change how, I guess the content that you're covering. Cause again, you still have to kind of hit informed consent. You still have to hit um, the different options that they have, but you're exactly right. It's like, usually once you get past the midnight hour, it's like <laughs> black and white, you know, there's a uh, considerable less gray at the, those hours. Cause it's either, they've been waiting for a period of time. They have to work in the morning. They just need some shit that's going to carry them over. And it's like, mm -hmm. this is just what I need. Okay, cool. Boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, or you have the people that, uh, you know, again, they ha they have been waiting because they legitimately think that it is a serious problem, you know, and sometimes that turns out to not quite be as serious as what they think. And then it goes yeah. one of two ways. They're like, you and I have been waiting this whole time for just that. And it's like, well, it's like several shifts in the <laughs> night where like, yeah, once it's like four or five, six a.m., their patient's been here several hours. Yeah. They know their mm -hmm. primary is opening in the morning. They're like, yeah okay, we can just try meds and like figure it out in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or it's like they're coming in because their dog just had diarrhea all night and now it's 4 a.m. and they yeah. can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're the coming inconvenience in hot. call. Yeah, yes. there's, there's a different range at yeah. some of the hours of the night. Yeah. like, yeah. oh my God, just get me home, whatever gets me home the fastest. Or yeah. I have been waiting and I literally can't stand it right now. Yeah. Do whatever you need to, I can't. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess for that, um, even a way that I think about it is we live in, especially now that it's all triage based, like exclusively, um, the overwhelming majority of our cases are reactive, right? So something's happening. I'm now reacting to something happening. Like it's yeah. sick patients, essentially. There's not a lot yeah. of proactive type stuff. We do have that, but one 100% of our proactive cases, which is 10% of our cases, all come in when the sun's up. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. when you're when you're here after, you know, hours, business hours, whatever, it's all reactive. It's all just that where it's like, I, could, yeah. I, I can't wait. Like this yeah. thing can't wait, whether, whether it's the next hour or the next two weeks because my primary just isn't yeah. taking patients for two weeks. It's all reactive. Yeah. And there, I mean, that's why we're here. Well, and that's, I mean, truthfully, that is the reason why we went 24 hours, to be perfectly honest, is that, you know, coming out of the economic dip of 2010 to 12, it was, I started seeing that in the after hours, we started getting a lot of super basic cases, ear infections. UTIs, skin cases, you know, things like that. And it, so that was actually the push to go 24s. It's like we, we physically and literally can't handle these types of cases and these caseloads after hours yeah. on top of like the additional reactive ones, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, all right, well, if we can, because when I, when we, when I, this is when I was an associate vet, the clinic was 6 p.m. Well, actually, it was 5 p.m., but I made him change it to 6. 6 p.m. until 8 a.m., mm -hmm. we would have cases in the parking lot as early as 5, 4.30. Yeah. So 90 minutes before the clinic even opened, they were just sitting in the parking lot. It's like, all right, well, we got five waiting for us. Um, and then what started to happen, this is kind of pre-COVID, um, then what I started to notice was even though they were in the parking lot as of 4.30, a lot of clinics were really not taking many cases after lunch. So it was like once two, one, two o'clock rolled around, they were done with their appointment base for the day so that they could, you know, be guaranteed that it's more probable with their drop off walk ins, fill ins that they're going to be done by 530 and be home at a respectable hour. Mm -hmm. So it was really a matter of 
you know, identifying that most of your referring uh, population was going to be seeing drop off walk ins fill ins between 8 a.m. and noon. And then it was really our responsibility to handle stuff from noon to five on top of everything that came from 6 p.m. until 8 a.m. Hmm. So that's where then for us now it's it's uh, it, it is now um, even more prevalent sort of in the current covid to post covid world where uh, our um, uh, sphere has increased so it's not that 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 path or that process has changed we're still seeing clinics really only catching cases from eight to noon you know drop off walk-ins fill-ins and pass that but now we went from having a 20 mile radius to a 100 mile radius you know, so now we have more clinics that are following that same candor, um, sending more patients to us. And then again, just getting completely overrun on both days and nights, at least in some capacity. Mm -hmm. But there is that expectation that, you know, we're one of the few after hours, 24 hour clinics in the state that isn't patient capping, mm -hmm. you know. So for us, it's it's, um, you know, one of the kind of kicks that I'm on right now is that triage is a courtesy. It really is a triage based system, not having appointments, being open 24 hours, having walk off or walk ins, drop offs, all that kind of stuff. It is really a courtesy to the community it is not it is not something that we as a business are forced to do. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we as a business have to do. We can easily lock our doors at midnight and be done for the rest of the night. Mm -hmm. So for us to, you know, uh, like what Rihanna had said is that people come in with a certain amount of energy. It's also like, you know, <laughs> these last couple of, I don't know, these last know, maybe four weeks, I've been meeting energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and that, so that's all part of it. It's like, you know, for me, it, you know, the, the luxury that I think we have at Paw Health is that this business was never built for the sake of building a business. This business was never built for the sake of making money. It was for the purpose of, you know, serving the patient. Mm -hmm. But more so than not, it's like we're, we're here fundamentally. Mm -hmm. You know, we're sort of here from a fulfillment standpoint. Don't fucking challenge it. Like if you're if you're coming in with a certain amount of energy and you don't want to be here, triage is a courtesy. If, if, if you don't want to be courteous, just leave. You know, and that's I've that. Heard it, I've heard a shift in how people say that they get here now too. I don't know if it's just, I don't know if it's just my experience or not, or if it's actually happening. But I hear more caregivers say, "My primary vet just said to go. Yes, just go to Paw, not call ahead. They'll yep. just show up. Yes, and I think more mm. people like. I I feel like a little more. At a disadvantage isn't quite the right word, but it's the one I'm using now. Mm -hmm. Because they come in expecting, like, they said to come right in. It's yeah. extremely serious. Oh, we'll be sure. seen right away. Yeah. Not, like, call and explain. And they're explained triage, and they're explained all the process when they get yeah. here. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I'm, I, I'm shaking my head as a way of saying... It doesn't matter how much you explain it the first time when it's in person. Yeah. They, it's so... Yeah. You're... You are backpedaling so much that there, there's like there's only so much that you can undo, like whether it's um, the level of severity, whether that was intentional or unintentional, that was dictated by the referring vets, or just like the amount of anxiety b before that person. It, like sure. you're like I I got damn good at it, and I'd still miss yeah. a quarter of the time, like because yeah. walk-ins are hard. Like you don't have that opportunity to spend two and a half minutes talking to this person about what to expect when they get here. And then they have that digestion time of driving. Right. Walk-ins are hard as shit. Yeah. And there's a reason that Grant literally despises them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess I don't, I, that's interesting that that's a shift, which is a good insight for me because that's a part of, you know, yeah. I, we've been talking a yeah. while about like coaching, referring vets yeah. a little bit more, not that yeah. they'll listen necessarily, yeah. but if that's a big disparity, that's something that's worth noting. And it's, you know, I mean, so again, I, th I think this kind of comes back to what I said initially, like when I was working, you know, relief on days, it was so foreign to me to have that sort of pace, you know, on scheduled stuff to be like, well, for us, I, I would like to think that at least internally, whether you're, you know, uh, level one, two, three, four, whatever you are in your employment, um, is that triage seems like the only way to do it. So to us, this is like not only the least foreign, it's actually the only thing that makes sense right. and the only thing that fucking works. <laughs> so like, you know, so it, so there's several things that we're battling is we're battling like, so the traditional experience, when I go to my vet, my vet acts this way. There's one. When I go to my vet, I have the expectation that I'm going to be seen at this time. When I go to my vet, I have the expectation that, you know, not just that I'm going to be seen at that time, but that I'm going to have practically no wait time and I'm going to be the priority one client. I get my results in this time. Yes. My medications are already filled at this time. Yes. What do you mean we have to wait to get my medications? <laughs> yes, well, yes. <laughs> yes. I was, I was speaking with a, a, a gentleman here this last week. Um, and he fields a lot of complaints, um, and not for us, but for on, on a state level. And he was saying that, uh, he had a client that, uh, had, uh, sent a complaint in about their veterinarian. I don't like my vet's attitude, but I like going there because it's this very familiar process. This is what I'm used to. This is what I like. And his reply was, he was like, well, just find a different vet if you don't like them then. And then she filed a complaint against him. So it was like, <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, just this unnecessary thing where it's like you have just this, this long standing rooted tradition of what the industry is. And, you know, a part of it is I not, not to say I necessarily uh, blame James Harriet, but like I have never, I, 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 I never really got into that world, meaning there's a, there are veterinarians and I had classmates and pe colleagues that I had in school where it's like that was their perception as a veterinarian of what it meant to be a veterinarian, just this black bag, you know, everything, all creatures type thing. Um, and that is a entity that a lot of people grab to. It's the allure of veterinary medicine. They love the thought of veterinary medicine. And that's why when, uh, again, some veterinarians get reality TV shows, um, independent of age and or state and or how they practice and where they're located and whether or not it is good <laughs> medicine or not, uh, is like people love those kinds of shows because it's like, you know, oh, this is what it means to be a veterinarian. It's like, no. Yeah, it's glamorous. It's glamorous. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, all they're doing it for the patient and it's like well yeah but anybody looking on with trained eyes is horrified by what's happening right. but yeah. you know and that's like a, that's tv that's what happens but mm -hmm. you know you're under the microscope you know so it is very hard to pull those types of shows and do it well it's not the point of the of what i'm saying what i'm saying is is that it's this idea that tradition isn't just rooted within um our practices where like we as an industry are so opposed to change it's that the clientele also is significantly opposed to change they it, and it's, it, i want to say all clientele but it's a very specific subset of clientele um and uh, i have found uh, at least now that i'm starting to kind of see the next generation up and coming um, and that's uh, Gen Z to kind of the, the younger millennials um, is it is starting to kind of get a little bit more of a shift where they simply 
don't really have an idea of what the industry was. Like maybe they went to the vet with their parents when they were in their teens, mm -hmm. but now that they're 18 to 22, mm -hmm. they don't really have a great grasp on sort of what it means to yeah. be at a practice. They haven't gone to a veterinary clinic for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have found um, that it's actually been a little bit easier to kind of work and mold that group than it is the other. But yeah, there's a, still a huge part of the curve that is that, you know, 45 plus, uh, you know, caregiver, you know, that we are constantly not battling, but we're trying to have to Just teach in a, yeah, in a very short amount yeah. of time that triage is the way of the future. It really is. Yeah. And, um, and also getting them to understand informed consent and yeah. that it is their responsibility to make their decisions. Uh, yes. Like uh, how many yes. times like, well, I'm here for you to tell me what to do. Yes. Like, you are the doctor. I'm here for your recommendations. You mm -hmm. tell yeah. me what you would do. Like, yeah, yeah. How big of a hurdle was that? Because, like, I've been around this so long, and it's the only thing that I know. Sure, like, yeah. it's, it, I feel like a part of it, it's just started to just be, a, like, intuition. It's just, like, that just makes sense. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like, All right. um, you came from you know, a limited experience in the veterinary world. Yeah. And then also at CVM, like, I don't know if that's really pushed that hard there. My perception of it is it's just like, kind of, but like, how was that transition of like being able to just be that neutral voice of a patient essentially and letting people make those decisions? Well, I liked it. That's why I came here. Mm. Um, because, and I said it a lot while I was even on my externship, like yeah. this just makes sense here. Like the, right. <laughs> it just makes sense. Yeah. You yeah. put the right words to the things that I had bad feelings about mm. yeah. in my limited experience. And that's why I chose to come here. Yeah. I went to a lot of other clinics and saw how they did things and tried to not come here for a job, honestly, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. y'all got me because yeah. it just made sense here. <laughs> yeah. So it logically, that's how my brain works. That's how I wanted to practice the medicine. Mm -hmm. So I found a place that would steer in and let me have that. What were the things that you didn't like? Because I don't think I've ever actually asked you that question. Because you you did other rotations. You worked, you know, in college, you worked other places. Like, what was the, the difference? Of... Like the other experiences, the what other you experiences. didn't like about the other. Yeah, what what yeah. were the things that were like, I don't like that thing? Um, well, I mean, the first time I heard you guys say, like, unnecessary conflict and <laughs> inefficient, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Every, yeah. like, poor example that I've had, like, funnels neatly into one of those probably. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of, like, at Michigan State, um, on ER, dog comes in it's it's coding you just run it in the back every like everyone is on it mm -hmm. everyone like we're getting a catheter and there's blood pressure we already have a vbg running like everything is already started and no one has been like do you want us to try to resuscitate your dog mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. do you want yeah. are you going to be on the hook for any of this yeah or do you have 20 total dollars mm -hmm. right am i make i'm inherently making decisions for you by starting treatment on your dog without knowing your dog or why it's dead. Right. Like, mm -hmm. So that never really sat well with me. I feel mm -hmm. like we jumped to the, this is what we could do. These are our resources, not what do, what do these people actually want? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I so actually it was kind of uh, coming off that as well is that so talking about informed consent in a university setting, you're already at the top five percent of clientele. Right. There isn't informed consent. It's just well here's the 15 things that can be done yeah. and the 15 things we're going to do and the 15 things you're going to let me do and the 15 things that we're probably going to figure out how you're going to pay for, you know? So it's like when they cut, like, you know, like saying, so when they come in, it's just like, well, obviously we're doing these 19 things to bring your patient back. Why wouldn't we? It got me weirded out on some rotations where like they come into ER. So they're just people in the community. They're not referred. They come in just because Shirt we are walk-ins the Shirt walk-ins or whatever. Yeah. 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 And, like, they get referred to internal medicine or they get referred to surgery. And now we're, like, running $2,000 worth of tests. Are we just going to send it home on steroids? Do mm. we? Do yeah. they need an answer or do they want to try treatment? Like, yes. I'm an answers person. I love answers. Mm-hmm. But right. do, are these answers people? They yeah. weren't given the option necessarily to be, like, how, how far do we want to push to get an answer? Do we really need to rule out this versus this? Which is actually a really funny experience. Now, I'm not saying I didn't see some of those uh, when I was uh, there as well, but um, I actually often talk about how I was trained um, under the medicine of we perform diagnostics to change how an animal is treated. So, like, that was actually what I had got a lot through, you know, my educational curriculum when I was there. So then fast forward what? Um, well, well, over a dozen years, right? And to say, well, now it's just a matter of, well, we're just going to do these things. Even if the treatment is the same at the end, we're still going to do these things to prove the same treatment at the end. That's actually, that's very fascinating. Because that's, like I said, that's different than sort of how I went through that that type, same same setting, same building, same people. Well, is I guess that would lead me to the question of, are they running, why are they running all of those diagnostics? Like, is it just to pin down, like, the idiosyncrasy of a diagnosis that has a similar, if not identical, treatment plan? Or is it to adjust the treatment plan? Or do they not know? And if it's one way, it's one way. If it's the other way, it's the other way. I'd say the former. Like... Yeah, I mean... Because then I know. It's academic. They want to know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I often talk about, uh, like, when I go through my consults, I'll often talk to people about... Uh, the difference between diagnostic medicine and clinical medicine. I don't know if I necessarily came up with those terms myself, but it's enough that that's just how I present the information. I say diagnostic medicine is you have to run all these tests so you know what to do. Clinical medicine is it doesn't matter. I only have these five drugs anyway. You know, so it's, yeah. it's you know, I used to tell people you try to have a balance between, because if you only go clinical, then you might be setting home antibiotics on like a liver failure patient that you didn't diagnose. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Brianna actually caught one here this last week where it came in, it was kind of, it was a smaller dog kind of lethargic or whatever, I 100% admit that I would have probably missed this patient because it was like not really walking right. It had a blown right knee. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure if this dog has been having some difficulty getting around. And then it turned out to be a three-day treated liver failure splenic cancer dog. You know, like it also had the knee thing, you know, (laughs) so... (laughs) Wow. You know, so th- so that's what I'm saying. It's like you have to kind of strike that balance between, yeah. you know, w- clinical medicine and diagnostic medicine. But you get more into not even the referral setting because the referral setting, I, I uh, when I got out of school, referral medicine meant university. 
It meant academic. That's what it meant 15 years ago. But now it's two totally different entities. Now you have that academic referral. So now I'm going to a teaching hospital or it's a privately run referral center, which again, inherently are going to be kind of two different entities, at least in, in some capacity. They will have specialists. They will have, you know, kind of those similarities. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, again, to just say like with clients and with the expectation in clinical medicine, diagnostic medicine, you know, it's when you kind of go to those settings, it's just like, well, we have to know, we need to know, we need that answer. We need mm -hmm. the answer because then you know, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's tough to guide people because you almost have to prepare them going for referral. You I do. You have often, to. Especially with like liver because yeah. uh, how, how close can we get to diagnosing every liver condition here? Correct. Like, Okay, and if it is something liver and it comes up liver on on like first initial blood work, I'm like, cool, we can right. we can ultrasound. <laughs> right. uh, I can rule out lepto for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. even within that first one, I start to prepare them. Like, if you are an answers person, if yeah. you need to know what it is, uh, start calling around to referral centers because we are fairly limited in the diagnostics yeah. I have to offer you here. Yeah. And we could try, we can At set you up with a yeah. real good plan, but yeah. if you need to know, keep that in the back of your mind. Hmm. Yeah. But that's specific to a body system too, right? Like we can- As an example. We, yeah, example. we can pin down a lot of other things, but yeah. the, apparently the liver is a complicated organ. Is it's, that what I'm gathering it's out not, of this? Yeah, it, it, yes. <laughs> You're talking to the guy that don't know shit about yes. livers besides they process alcohol. I was gonna alcohol. say, yeah, it does more than ethanol processing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, that's, so again, you know, I think when we, the other thing that we often have, uh, working on nights is that not just necessarily limitations in our diagnostic potential and the onslaught of clients, uh, caregivers and patients that we do receive, but it's also additional limited resources. So we don't have necessarily the ability to call a specialist well, I should say pre-COVID. So mm -hmm. pre-COVID, we didn't really have that opportunity to like call down to university or call to a referral center and be like, hey, I got this weird case. You know, I might end up referring it to you. Is there something that I can do now before I send the case to you? Or is there something else that I should do? It's becoming more and more and more in a pre-COVID world, more and more readily apparent that we're pretty much on our own. Mm -hmm. um, and now in a current to post-COVID world, it's uh, even worse, you know, because now we have just so many cases being overrun at so many locations, um, especially the university settings. It's kind of just like, I would love to get these people an answer for this liver thing, but go ahead and get your appointment 10 weeks from now, mm. you know, eight weeks from now. Maybe mm. they can squeeze you in in six. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to do between now and then? I don't know. Here's a drug, you know? So right. it's, so that's what kind of then ends up limiting not necessarily what we can establish from a consent standpoint but it's just preparing them more into being like well um your vet's not going to be able to help you tomorrow um you know we just ran the test that they can run and we still have referring clinics that send lab work out so actually we have more data than they would be able to have for you um and then it's just like, and we're on our own again, you know? So it's why I can't go for referral for a number of reasons. It's too far out, uh, expense, you know, monetarily, um, even sometimes from a bond spectrum standpoint, people aren't going to that level of referral. So mm -hmm. it's just kind of these, you know, uh, complicating things that we sort of get on nights. Um, you know, not that they don't have it during the day, but it's, we really do have less resources, mm -hmm. um, you know, in that regard, mm -hmm. um, you know, for case management. Have you been seeing any, um, I mean, you've, there's really, see, this is where it gets interesting. So, um, 
you really kind of came in, um, mid, was that mid COVID? Yeah. It was like, cause you guys were here basically June one of last year. Yeah. And then that was pretty much when the scales yeah. tipped and. Oh think, yeah. It would have been new building. Yeah. Yep. Um, have you seen any shifts in like trends in the way caregivers are behaving in relation to bond spectrum or anything like that? Or has it been your focus been more primarily on like yourself and improving your ability as a doctor or, um, communication stuff or like, I guess, where has your focus been and kind of what have you seen? Um, as far as COVID trends goes, Mm um, I think a people, people were a lot more financially limited or mm-hmm. less um, less willing to throw down a lot of money for diagnostics earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then somewhere within the spring, and I don't know if it was like tax time or everyone thinking COVID was over now, uh, people, I think, were a lot more willing to run a lot more diagnostics. I feel like I run a lot more <laughs> diagnostics in the night than I yeah. than I used to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And we needed that. Like we needed like honestly from a process standpoint, we needed it both ways. You know, we needed to kind of at least from a mental stimulation standpoint, we kind of needed some of those cases to be able to work through as medical cases and, you know, take a problem, get to an answer, you know, identify a solution, but also there are those times where it's just like, okay, this, you know, cat who is sneezing, we just need to get it out of here and talk about L-lysine and, you know, feeling like rhinotracheitis virus. Those are supposed to be the quick and easy ones. But now, like you said, yeah, it was kind of about the time the second COVID check hit and then tax season and yeah. everything else. Now it's just like, well, obviously on this sneezing cat, um, if we don't do full blood work and urine, it's just going to die at home. And it's hmm. like, oh, oh uh it is? Is that... Have you been We went to zero to 100 thing? pretty quick on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. Because yeah. oh, if I remember correctly, it was right around this time that... Because you worked a ton last summer. Um, there was that one overnight where you were working where you tried as hard yeah. as possible... Yeah. To basically just treat and convince street. this late, not even um, like you just knew what it was. Yeah. It was one of those where it's like all of the writing was on the wall, yeah. and it, it, the carrier was still elected. All the blood work, yeah, yeah. all the I diagnostics, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and it was like no matter what you said, she was going to do it. Yeah. I want. I wonder if there's a part of it where it's because because from from my perspective, just seeing all the check in sheets, there's a pile of out of towners and i don't know if you yeah. guys ever recognize oh, that sure. or see a trend in that yeah uh, i wonder if that plays a part of it uh, well i think there's a willingness right so it used to be like if people were you know if they sacked in the night where it was like yeah. we've been here for four hours five hours like by god i'm going to have a b c and d done yeah. it now that our sphere of influence has grown where it's like well i'm driving 100 miles i'm driving 80 miles to this clinic by god i'm gonna get one two three four yeah. You know, so it was, um, I even had a case this last week where the patient was clearly debilitated, uh, emaciated. I mean, it was only two years old. It had been sick for at least two months. And I had told the people, I'm like, I, I, I 
don't actually care what is wrong with your dog. I was like two years old. We should never be a body condition score one out of nine and have these symptoms for two months. I said, it's not going to be a good answer. Um, and they had, I think 10 other dogs on the property or something like that. And it was just a matter of like, it's the same thing. Like the writings on the wall, whatever it is, there's no magic pill that's going to not only fix the disease for the last two months, but also the 90% body weight loss that this patient had. And it was just, Oh, well, obviously we have to do all the tests and it's like, that's fine. I'm not going to stand in the way. That's what consent is. But it's, it's again, it's that willingness when they had drove same thing. It was like two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. It was just like, well, this is what we're doing. It was actually from, I think North of green Bay. So they'd completely Mm. bypassed green Bay and came all the way here. So it's like, so again, that kind of consumer trend is, um, you know, obviously I think whether you have people that are waiting for extended periods of time, people that are driving for prolonged periods, it's all set in the same idea of concern. And so mm-hmm. regardless of what their variable for concern is, they're willing to go, <laughs> pun intended, the extra mile, yeah. you know, to, to seek services that are going to some way sort of drive their narrative on whether the patient is or is not ill. Um, but again, like I said, for us, we kind of needed that balance in order to handle the caseload where we have the easy treatment streets and we have some of the major medicals. Mm-hmm. Um, but now where your treatment streets are uh, getting the workups of major medicals, but remaining treatment streets, it's... Uh, difficult to adapt a, a system beyond a triage-based system that can sort of absorb that amount of workload and caseload. Um, but fundamentally, when you have you know ten clients and five should be treating streets, and now it's ten major medicals, it's like there just literally isn't enough time in an hour, in a mm-hmm. shift, in a day to get that done. Mm-hmm. So how do you responsibly? guide people you know into a certain thought path and i think that's what we were talking about too like from an informed consent standpoint it's like you want to just sort of make them not really handhold but just feel better about the fact that just because your six-month-old dog missed a meal today and your dog that died when it was 15 years old and it missed a meal it doesn't mean you're patient who passed is now going to be the six month old. So it's, you kind of navigate a lot of these things and how, but how can you do that in a responsible way while maintaining consent? You know, it's, it, it is, it is very difficult to navigate. And a lot of times you just can't, but again, it's, you try to, you try to get them. And that's where sometimes you can play off wait times. You can play off some of those other variables. Yeah, I was just going to bring up yeah. wait times. It's like, <laughs> yeah, both. It's terrible to have such a long wait time, yeah. but also sometimes it's an advantage when the pot dog comes in unable to walk. And yeah. then like six hours later, I'm like, it's, he's walking. Right. He's yeah. not peeing himself. Like right, yeah. we're so much better now. They're like, yeah. Oh cool. Yeah. I'll take it home. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or I had like a couple puppies this weekend that just like played too darn hard. They were just so yeah. darn tired. Yeah. They puked mm-hmm. once because they got a little cheese. Yeah. And sure. then and then they just went on. Good and Wisconsin dogs. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but they they it was two separate families, like pretty much the same history, but they waited for eight hours yeah. and then I told them that their puppy was awake and wagging its tail and like yeah. bouncing up and down and parvo negative and uh-huh. we have not puked since. And they're like how we were just so worried. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. So mm-hmm. those yeah. get out quicker um, from from my standpoint. When yeah. You have a long wait time. Cause yeah. 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 Um, I I guess I, I want to go back to your question though. Is yeah. you know have you learned how to walk that line of like 
like you, you, you know, you're, you've been doing this long enough. Like you're going to see something and you're going to be like, I pretty damn sure I know what that is. Right. Like the first, the first bit of like just that learning experience and like going, you know, maybe even call it the first year, but we're past that point. Um, now it's, you, you've seen enough things, you've done enough, you've worked enough cases up, all that sort of stuff. Like you're going to see a patient walk in and be like, pegged it. Like, I don't need to, I don't need this lab. I, I just, I got what this is, but you also have to walk that line of like getting that person to that point and letting them go through the process. Like, have you, have you figured out, uh, you know, tricks or like ways to communicate people with people effectively to get them through that without overdoing it or underdoing it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, not in like a play-by-play rule book that I can just rattle off yeah. now, but um, I mean, I I try to get a read on each caregiver, like what are they actually looking for here, um, and kind of play off that if they just want peace of mind. Like I have a kind of gentler talk path for them, um, and like kind of play up that we could try all this. If it doesn't work, twenty-four hours you can come right back. Like yeah. we can just give this a shot if if you're comfortable with that we can we can just try this first or um, sometimes I tell people I don't know how to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong right now but here's a couple tests that we could could if we're gonna sit here and argue that you think that it's mm-hmm. this and I'm saying I think it's this we can try to prove that I'm right and you're wrong mm-hmm. or you're right and I'm wrong mm-hmm. I like being wrong sometimes and I yeah. just I present it that way to people like mm-hmm. it's it's not you versus me but like right. we could try to mm-hmm. yeah and I think what I've done too is to that point I mean when you have the you know weak lethargic dog to try to have them understand that it's not going to be a, a tick-borne disease in northern Wisconsin um, one of the at least ways that I've kind of skirted that line is actually talking about what the tests don't tell us, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's another thing that sometimes becomes beneficial because there's actually a lot of misconceptions. So, um, you know, tick-borne diseases, our screening tests are primarily antibody. They're not antigen. Yeah. You know, I'll have people where they're like, well, I think my dog has an obstruction. You know, it was eating some stuff and it's like, okay, cool. I'd be more than happy to get x-rays for you. But just so you're aware, we can only really see like rock and bone really well. We can't see cloth and plastic mm-hmm. and wood and this and this and this. So I'll, I'll kind of preface a lot of that about what we won't get from the, the test. And they're like, oh, well, why would we do that then? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's one that I use a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but then it also sets the stage for if they want that diagnostic, um, it sets the stage for you're like, well, we didn't see the thing we knew we probably weren't going to see. And like, well, I'm glad we did it then. Okay, cool. Like, I'm yeah. glad you're happy with the information that you got. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's better than just saying like, oh, I think your dog might have an obstruction. Let's take an x-ray. And then usually what the people hear is like, because we will be very scientific about it. You know, I didn't see any clearly obstructive material. That's a very common thing that we'll say. And it's like, oh, well, they didn't find anything obstructive. So because I'll get a lot from clients come in from referring vets where they took x-rays and didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, they can't see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it kind of sets the stage for when you say, all right, well, you know, you know, we might not see that stuff. And, you know, in the 15 minutes, it's going to take me to get x-rays you guys need to take that time to make a decision on whether or not you want to have barium done. 
So if we still want to push the narrative that your patient has an obstruction, take the next 15 minutes. So that way, when I present you with the x-rays that there's no clear evidence of obstruction, we're not going to sit here and stare at each other while you process that you, you want or don't want a barium. You know, so I'll even kind of task them with, you know, like mm -hmm. you said, not just a matter of proving me right or them right or whatever it is, because that is definitely a big part of that conversation. It's a matter of like, okay, so when we get this test, what do you want to do after? So that way it's not like they're waiting for the answer to start the decision-making process. It's like I need them to multitask their brain space because the quicker that they can come up with a decision based on the results that I'm about to give them, they don't need the extra think time. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't done that yet with, like, barium, yeah. but that, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I, I do yeah. prepare people for, like, if this test is negative, look at all the things it rules out. Sure, and yeah. And, like, if, if it comes back normal, can I can we just throw on outpatient medical management on yeah. this initial estimate? And then yeah. just, you know, yeah. when it when it hopefully is normal, like, I think it will be, you just, yeah. you just steer right in and go. So I've tried mm -hmm. to... Mm -hmm. not cut a corner but expedite that in that yeah. way and that's all it is and i i wouldn't i agree with you i wouldn't even necessarily call it a corner cut yeah is it's it's your you're actually running triage from their perspective than just your own which is like okay i need you to think about this and this and this like it and it does it, it does help so that it's not just like they're sitting around well we haven't got the x-ray results yet and we've been waiting 20 minutes we don't even have the answers yet we don't have the answers yet and it's like but you needed that time to think about something other than how long it's taking to get that diagnostic, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'll even, so I had a diagram around somewhere about, um, you know, our job, or at least what I see, our job as veterinarian is to establish a certain base of reality. And from that reality, you create a plan. So I have actually found myself in my consultations um, exclusively focusing on the next step. Like I, I have almost, uh, almost entirely bypassed the justification for the test. Like, well, we need to test a real kidney disease. It's like, okay, cool. I can do these things to figure out whether we have kidney disease or not. But depending on what that test shows, what do you guys want to do next? And I think that's how like, it expedite, been able to expedite a lot of consults and being like, okay, if lab work is negative, either you guys are going to make a decision that you're either going to continue on testing or you're going to continue for, or you're going to move on to treatment. And if you're going to move into treatment, you're either going to hospitalize or you're going to take home. So those are the three things I need you to think about. More testing, stay here or go home. And you got 20 minutes to figure it out. Yeah. See ya. I yeah. think those more than like a specific <laughs> test is next, but yeah. like if it goes this way, you know, maybe hospitalization. If not, yeah. we, we can talk outpatient. We'll yeah. see how bad it is first. Right. And then... Yeah. 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 So it's, so it is, it's a juggle. It's, you know, and I think that's where, um, you know, I, I, cause what, what I try to think about Katie and I, I didn't really even realize that I did this, but she had made, this is probably two years ago now at this point, she had said to me, she's like, you know, for me, uh, as a doctor, I have a skill where when, um, the people, uh, need more time and we have the time to give. So it's like a slow day on triage that I just completely adapt into going into those consults, perfectly being okay with spending the time that we need for those people. But on the other side, there are times where we're hustling. We need to get shit done. We need to get stuff moved. We got to figure out who's treating street and who's major medical. Um, but then it's an adaptation into that next role of just like, boom, 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 boom. Like, you know, I'll come through. Like Caroline, she always gets so mad at me. She's like, you just did six. I'm like, I, listen, I know that I just did six and the amount that it took you to do one. I don't know how I did it. 
you know, I don't know what words I changed in my mouth that meant I could get through these cases faster. Uh, but obviously there is an adaptation technique. Um, and I think that's where for me, I've gone almost exclusively into that mindset of just boom, 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 boom. You know, I've kind of probably shied away from some of those like slow hand holding, like major explanation type consults. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince myself one way or another why that is. And I think on one hand, it's the combination of um, quality and quantity. So when quantity goes up, naturally you have to drop off quality in order to maintain the quantity, but you don't want to drop quality so much that now you have poor quality in the face of high quantity. Mm -hmm. So, but for me, I think what I've found is that over the years, because the whole thing is client or caregiver education, right? We have education rooms. We're here to educate, serve the patient, educate the caregiver. Um, as I think what I've kind of felt and learned over the years is that those cases where I really dig in and spend the time and talk to them and answer all their questions, it actually doesn't increase the amount of education that I can provide that individual uh, than the ones where it is the really fast ones. Boom, here it is. Here's it is. Here's your caregiver resource. This and this. Change diet. Ba da da. And so I was like, man, it just, you know, why is that that we're sort of meeting this barrier on the amount we can educate them? It's because it's too fucking much. Mm. Like the amount of information you provide in these really long consultations, these are not science people. Mm -hmm. These are not doctors, you know, and this had actually come up, Katie had heard on NPR where it was like, it was a doctor and actually on the human side, actually talking about informed consent. It's like, how far do you go with people that don't even know what a kidney is? Yeah. You know, so what's yeah. so where is it? Where is that happy medium? And that's, I guess, the whole point of me saying this is just trying to find these expedite, you know, techniques and saying, how do how do I, how do I actually adapt into moving a lot of these major medicals along in a timely fashion? Because you'll even have these hospitalized patients. You, you've said it before, like this one just needs the Riolo touch, you know, and it's like <laughs> they just need you to talk to them. And I'm like, OK. Like, I don't, I don't know what that is or how I can teach you to have the Riolo touch, but I just know that usually when I go into these consults, they're like, oh, okay. And I know I didn't say anything different than anyone before me, yeah. but sometimes I wonder if it's a matter of just, you know, being like incredibly direct. And mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's just what the kids say these days, the full send, mm -hmm. you know? So for me, I'm just more willing to be like, let's just commit to what that is. I'm just going to commit to the most probable, um, and that's actually why I think Rhiannon, um, you know, when I start to look at the other doctors I've worked with over the years and uh, certainly Dr. Potter coming on, I was actually really intrigued to see Dr. Potter coming on because I wanted to see how her deep personality functioned in an environment where like you just have to make a decision. Um, that's actually what I think uh, is an attribute that you have in order to be successful in nights. And you, I don't know if you know whether or not you have it, but it's a matter of just being like, here's the variables. I'm just going to commit to what this is and we're just going to move forward with it because I don't actually have any other option, but I'm also super comfortable doing it because those two things don't go together. It's not, well, th I don't have any other option than just doing a full commitment on this, but I'm just going to you know, be really anxious about whether that was the right move. It was like, nope, the variables we had at that time, it was really the only decision that could be made and we went with it and then we're going to learn from it. Either they were right or I was right or whatever it is. But that, that level of, um, I don't, and I think at least in some capacity has to be confidence. It has to be, you know, I think for us, uh, when we are in that sort of setting where there's, you know, really isn't anyone else to help, no one else to collaborate with, nowhere to send these patients, limited diagnostics, we have, you know, ang you know, we have the emotions to deal with from caregivers, whatever it is, you have all of those things to juggle, and then it's just a full send. 
And then it's just like, yep, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's what's happening. But also being comfortable with it as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, not, not to kind of pull the veil back on it too much because it's kind of open and so on and so forth. But that was, I think, when we had a complaint come through uh, where we had um, a judgment that was not necessarily in our favor. That, I think, is what has fundamentally challenged that system is it's like, yeah. but we're doing the things on like we're informing them of what's available. They're making decisions on what's available. I'm practicing medicine that I am comfortable practicing in an environment where we support that level of practice. And then it's an outside entity being like, well, that doesn't sound right. And it's like, but, but why? Tell, tell me why. <laughs> right. right. Point to the line that says that I did wrong there. Cause I, I yes. Yes, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously being vague there for a couple of different reasons, yeah. but yeah. it was it's more of, you know, and that's what I think uh, has the opportunity to substantially impact the way in which we function when there is an outside entity being like, well, that's not the right way to do it. And it's like, fuck you, I will fight you until I am right. Uh, however, um, but that's where, like I said, I don't know if, uh, and maybe you do recognize that, but I would say that's a, a very, very strong attribute that you have to have in order to run that setting to literally be carrying emergencies for a hundred mile radius, like, mm -hmm. you know, practically on your own. Um, I mean, I obviously I'm there for collaboration in some capacity, but sometimes I'm just pass the fuck out, <laughs> you know, like that does happen. Carlos <laughs> sleeps. Yeah, right. I mean, there, there are times where it is like, it is just, there's no option other than just the brain being like the power off. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, what uh, do you mean? I missed phone calls. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. I was like, ah, I don't even, it was like, I wake up I'm like, I don't know what day it is right now. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like today? Right. Like yeah. when you walked in, you yeah. were like, what day is it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I thought it was Monday for three days, but it's fine. Uh, um, but anyway, so yeah, I guess that I'm trying not to ramble, but I, I don't know if that's not something that you can attest to, or at least if you have that feeling regarding sort of that just full send on those variables, because sometimes it's being a natural, you know, where it's just like, well, but that's just the way that I do it. And that's just the way that it needs to get done. Yeah, I'm I'm big on going off of my gut. I'm big on like trusting that intuition and just going for it. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to be like, well, we have to full send. And how I phrase it to a lot of people sometimes is like, we are at C right now. I don't know how A got to B got to C. Mm -hmm. We can try to figure that out, but we're at C and this is what it is right now. Yep. So we can we can try that. But you need to understand what C is and where we go from this. So it's, I don't feel like I'm giving any disservice by not having an answer immediately. I don't think that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get better the longer I'm practicing. I, I know that I missed things. Yeah. I know that, like, I'm not a perfect doctor yet. But I don't feel like I'm giving any disservice by saying, I, by not having that A and B by acknowledging C, I'm comfortable jumping into it mm -hmm. because it's their responsibility to know what they want to do with that information. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, well, I feel more comfortable not having every single answer. Yeah. But also how valuable is knowing A and B? Right. If it's not changing what they're doing with C. Right. Like yeah. I, I've always been curious about that. Even just like just thinking about problem solving and because there's there's a there's a weird despair or weird dichotomy or a balance, if you will, with in just basic problem solving of how far down do you dig into the root 
versus how much do you just have to acknowledge what reality is and just be fucking practical. Yeah. Like I get the value of that system's judgment. Like let's see how we got here and how does that impact where we go? But also we have a problem Yeah. and we need a solution because if we don't have a solution, we hit a period at the end of the sentence and then it doesn't matter how we got here yeah. or where we might have gone because the sentence ended. I, th- I think, uh, and you know, I'm, uh, I don't really get into the human psyche all that much, but there is a part to people's, because uh, when, usually when you're talking about C, it's not like a good C. No. It's usually not like, uh, No, you know, I don't go into happy consults <laughs> with that one. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right, right. So usually part of that emotional response for people, um, at least the caregiver, um, a portion of it is also like the guilt part. Well, how did we get to this? How did I miss this? Why is this? Why? Where did we? How could I have done differently? And that was, again, my uh, uh, example of the one dog in emaciated with 10 other dogs on the property. They needed to know so the other 10 dogs don't go that way. So, you know, that's at least being very practical in a a 10-dog setting. Um, But then also it's like your single dog, high anthropomorphized, bond-spectrum household where it's like, well, how could it have gotten this far and how did I not realize? And sometimes when it's like, you know, we can try to do A, B to get to C, um, but also sometimes disease just sucks. Right. And like, and I say that and they're like, it does, you know? And it's yeah. like, sometimes no, just that, like, <laughs> that gets people sometimes <laughs> yeah. just like take it back for a second and yeah. acknowledge that it's bad right now when it sucks. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, that, that little bit, there's that little bit. And I don't, I don't emotionally connect too much with people. Um, Dr. Potter definitely saw me emotionally connect with this one caregiver the most. She was like, that was weird. And it was like the most probably the last 15 years. It's a long story anyway. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's like if you can at least show, at least in some capacity, I don't know that it's sympathy or empathy, yeah. but just like recognizing the gravity of the circumstance. Because, again, there is that trust component. There's no way you can get to a level of reality when there is a barrier of distrust. Mm-hmm. So just sometimes that little bit, this pretty much just sucks. And they're like, oh. Mm-hmm. You're right. It does. Cool. Yeah. Reality. Now it's not, you know, and sometimes that's even just using the verbs or, you know, words where they're just like, oh, the, I just had a veterinarian tell me this sucks. This must really suck. Right. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it, I think people can be really blind to it, too, and yeah. not even know that they are yeah. like this. Just yeah. I've I've seen my dog or my cat every single day for yeah. the last oh, 15 for sure. years. Yeah. Slow degradation yes. over time yeah. is can be completely unnoticed until it gets really bad. Yeah. And yeah. then you get to that point where it's like, I'm just, I, I'm here to have a professional tell me that this isn't right yeah. or that this does suck. And yeah. because, and you're, you're referring to empathy, sympathy would be saying, and now I am emotionally compromised oh, yeah, on your that. behalf. Yeah. And I don't <laughs> think we do that a lot around here, yeah. but empathy is, is yeah. just, just seeing it from their perspective. It's like, yeah, you, you didn't see it and I'm not blaming you at all. Like, disease sucks yeah like this this wasn't supposed to be fun or good like this this is tough and you probably might or may have just been completely blind to it by no fault of your own oh and i tell him i said i said the only reason why this is easy for me is because i went to school to learn how to make it easy for me right you know i'm like that's that's the end of it like i'm we're not equals with you know between us and the caregivers we're not equals with respect to our level of education we're equals from a humanity standpoint 
point. Mm-hmm. You know, we are all here essentially for the same purpose, but um, the amount of information I have makes it very easy for me to look at your history and be like, oh, well, that was wrong and that was wrong and that was wrong and that was wrong. Not because I want you to feel bad, but if the whole point of identifying C is that we need to talk about A and B, it's like, well, we probably should have been seen then. We probably should have been seen then. We probably should have been seen then. Um, probably may not have made a substantial difference. And that's where a lot of times, like, it's talk kidney cases or, you know, some of these other end of life cases. It's like, eh, if you would have recognized this six months ago, maybe we could have been having this conversation at eight months instead of six months. Like, it really wouldn't have made a substantial impact on outcome. And they're like, oh, okay, I actually feel yeah. better about that. You know, so that's where I think, you know, on the empathy side, you just kind of be like, yeah. It's- but but I, I want to point out a key um, process of communication in that is you're not telling the person that they did nothing wrong without backing it up. Like right. you're you're not consulting with them on behalf of the caregiver. You're not right. going into that with the intention of like quelling the emotional response. Right. It's education. Right. It's like, hey, man. Right. There's nothing you could have done. Right, right. Like it, it's just it's just what it was going to be. Yeah. And like and this is how that progresses and this is why people can't see it and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Like you're just giving them the the disease progression. Yeah. Not like you're a good person. It's like, "No, nah, the world sucks." Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shit's hard. Yeah. This is one of those moments. Yeah. I understand that it sucks. Yeah. It's the same thing with trauma. You know, some kid leaves a screen door unlocked or the gate to the fence unhinged or, you know, it's it's the same thing. You know, they're just like, I can't believe. And if I wouldn't have done this and I'm like, you know what? It's here's where we are. Yeah. Like, I agree. Yep. If the hinge was done appropriately, but also maybe if you would have slept in that day and the dog was outside five minutes later and that car hadn't driven by, it's just the conundrum of what is lost. There's a thousand variables that would or would not have impacted the state of the outcome. But it's like, it's just, and I always tell people, I'm like, you know, they're like, oh, I just feel so bad. I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. I'm like, I, I said, we're in the business of emergency. I'm like, we're in the business of trauma. We're in the business of illness. I said, I, I, and I, I even tell people, I'm like, I don't really think we need to talk about your emotions regarding this. I said, because to me, I, I don't think less of you for what has happened here today. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to try to justify to me. So I think you're a different person. I'm like, it just doesn't matter, right. you know, and, and sometimes people don't like that. Um, but. <laughs> Well, they, they, but the, yeah. I would say the intention behind that is the next time that that person walks in the door, they're not going to be treated any differently. Correct. Like we're yeah. not making that note. Yeah. We're not like seeing the, the oh. crap that was. And it's just it's just so much random stuff. Like you know, people yeah. they just a dog has a laceration on their leg. They think they're the worst person on earth, and it's like. No, it's just a laceration. Like, it's fine. Like, Mm -hmm. shit happens. You know, kids fall off their bikes and whack their heads. Like, it's just things happen. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah. So, but that's, you know, again, at nights, I think, you know, kind of going back to how we kind of started this conversation, it's like you have kind of all these different things that are overlapping when the caregivers come through. They've had wait long time, uh, long wait times or travel or, you know, that inherent level of concern. You kind of have to mitigate that as best as you can. And I think the, the reality is try to expedite the process to get to a certain level of reality and the lowest emotional state possible. I mean, that's really what the goal is. Get them there and try to, you know, but not that it's our job to mitigate their emotion, but just really focus on the facts and just try to get it forward that way. Yeah. So, but I guess, you know, one question, uh, Rihanna, now that we're, you know, year and a couple months into it, um, 
does working nights seem as substantial as a barrier uh, for, cause I mean, that's gonna be the big question, right? Like a lot, cause I used to get the question a lot when I first came out is new graduates, you know, veterinary students, you know, people that are even looking to get into overnight medicine or just looking for a change, honestly, not, maybe not necessarily specifically nights. Um, did it, did it seem like there were as a substantial amount of barriers either within yourself individually or within the clientele as a subsect in the after hours setting? Does it, is it seem like an insurmountable barrier? Like, does it really seem as hard as what it was made out to be? Or maybe it wasn't made out to be, but just how people's perspective when they start to think about working nights, I think that's the big thing. Well, I, <laughs> I you, have, never, you have a younger okay, audience. So a younger audience. I never even thought I'd get to this point. <laughs> sure. Like I applied for vet school thinking that I was going to get rejected. I went to vet school sure. thinking I was going to fail out. I started looking at jobs, looking for GP because like no way I can do emergency medicine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like this is where I ended up, and I like I've been doing it. Yeah. I'm not perfect at doing it, but I've been doing it. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm still yeah. here, still doing it. <laughs> Like, (laughs) (laughs) so every step has felt insurmountable, but it's like, we'll just keep doing it. What's, what's pushing you? Like, what's the thing that keeps you, but besides, I mean, maybe it is just the reality of having to live as an adult and (laughs) do that. Uh, Yeah. Like riding out the decision. But like what, you know, that, that was why, that was why I read grit. I wanted to figure out kind of what my pushing factor was. What's your what is the thing that's either propelling you or pulling you forward? I don't know. I, I'm ambitious. I want to be better. Mm-hmm. I want to do more, be better, get there sooner. Like, and I get there sooner by doing more. I'll do more on it's okay. Yeah. So, like, yeah. it's just like stubbornly wanting to get there faster. Mm. And I don't have an end goal. I have like a a little like plaque thing in my apartment that's like I don't know where I'm going but I'm going. Yes. I'm not mm-hmm. a plan person. I don't have a 5-year plan. Mm-hmm. But I'm opportunistic. I'm going to go. Yeah. I don't know what the end goal is. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to get there. It's just the stubbornness of not being afraid to try it. So, what have you been trying to improve on because I, I think here here's where my curiosity lies and you might have another category but you know thinking about the fact that you didn't really think that doing the night shift work being an emergency vet was even possible but now you're succeeding in it what have you found yourself working on whether it's the science communication or yourself or all of the above? All of it. Have you, it depends <laughs> on what fire's the hottest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, a, and yeah. a little bit of all three all the time. Like, yeah. there's... I Again, I'm. it's not goal-oriented. It's not like, at, by the end of this month, I want to comfortably cut a splenectomy. Yeah. It's, I don't have those goals, so it's all indifferent, like, which fire's the hottest. All right, well, I had to get medicine under control pretty much first i had to get no i probably had to get communication under control first mm. um I've, i i i i actually have a very similar uh <laughs> perspective uh oddly enough uh, i think ambitious is the one that uh kind of strung most but i often describe it as playing pinball 
and I, I know this doesn't like translate very well to Gen Zers, but it's like you just send the fucking ball up. And it's just a matter of hitting the ball and it's going to hit different parts of that pinball, but you're playing the same game and you're just trying to go for a high score. Yeah. And it's just, it's like ping. And it's like, oh, if I can get it up that ramp, then it means, you know, and then it's like, oh, but it comes down and oh shit, like sometimes it falls down, but thank God I got that extra ball on reserve, you know? So it's like, you're, you're constantly just kind of playing that game of ping ponging between, but it's, or pinballing, you know, between all the different things, but the score keeps going up. So it's each little thing gets better each time. And there's, there's two things I'm actually, I, I don't want to, and you may have just been saying it, but I just want to challenge the idea of what is the perfect vet. Um, and it doesn't exist, you know, and, but I, th- I think the perfect, in my opinion, I think the perfect vet or the perfect professional veterinary nurse, whatever it is, you're exactly right. I think it's ambitious. I think it's growth mindset. I think it's getting better. And I just, I think the perfect is trying to attain the high score. It's not, it's not so much of, um, you know, saying, well, I have to do this thing the exact way and have to be good at it. I mean, like even last night uh, or this morning, Caroline and I were in the surgery. I was breaking down some adhesions. It was a recent spay patient. I started getting bleeding at, I'm like, well, that shouldn't be bleeding over there. And it was like every single time for the last 15 years that I've taken down adhesions, I always tie off the adhesion. I'm just like, eh, I don't feel like doing that this time. And then the fucking thing started bleeding. I'm like, all right, extend my incision. Let me just go grab it. I'll throw a ligature on it. I know I should have done it, but every other time other than that, it's never been a problem. So it's just like, yeah, all right, fine. Ping. You know, it's like, yeah, just got to go fix that. So it's, yeah, you kind of try to figure out, are there more efficient ways to do this? You know, and I think truthfully, um, to be perfectly honest, I, I really feel like I learned the most amount of information out of veterinary school in the first year to year and a half. Easy. Um, after that, it's just been tweaks. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, well, this is the way I talk that way. This is the way I present this lab. This is the way I get that clinical history. So I would say, like, fundamentally, it doesn't change a ton. It's just, I mean, I don't know if if you can attest to that and just saying, like, it seems like there is a rhythm and a pattern to some of these things. And I think you're exactly right. The more you see, you just get more familiar with it. And I think that, that was sort of the pace of day practice that didn't really sit for me, is that pace really wasn't, like, it was, I don't want to say it wasn't fast enough, but it wasn't there was just a part of it that was way too routine um you yeah, know I, I mean to bring it all the way back the yeah. reactive mm-hmm. uh more the more reactive than the proactive that we see at night i naturally like those cases more mm. for uh, sure and also something that gets a lot of people more interested in like day practice gp things like that are developing and maintaining like relationships with mm. with people and i, I suppose i don't get fulfillment from that yeah it feels nice when someone says, I like you, come right. back. Like, all right. Like, yeah, that feels nice, but right. I'm not gaining fulfillment from that. Yeah. I get more fulfillment yeah. from managing those reactive cases, from helping mm-hmm. that patient when they showed up at our doorstep at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that make me feel better. Mm-hmm. So. That's good to know, though, because I would be the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Like, I know personally that I'm a relationship developer uh, and I did it. Yeah. Like, you know, I would yeah. I, like, they, they weren't just caregivers to me. Yeah. They were people with names. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. Like, it, I yeah. always approached those differently, but that didn't come na- you know, naturally I had to learn that. Yeah. And knowing that's what drives you. Number one, I think that aligns extremely well with, what our ultimate purpose is of serve the patient because uh, yeah, it really truthfully. cuts off a lot of the crap. Truthfully. Like you just don't have to, you don't focus on it and you don't have to worry about it because you know, there's a team yeah. and a culture b- b- backing you. They're not going to say, Hey, 
you were mean to that person who's been a longstanding client. Like, I feel like that environment wouldn't go very well for yourself. Yeah. And that's why sometimes I just shut my hole, you know, like, and not to say that you guys are doing anything wrong, but like it's, people see it different ways, I guess. Yeah. And for me, it just comes back to, I mean, you know, again, I, it's these very like basic fundamentals you learn as a child, like, you know, don't worry about what people say about you and be true to yourself. And, you know, these things that it's like we hear, but for some reason along the way, we forget the message. And as we start worrying about what people think about us and we start worrying about, you know, and we start to lose who we are and we start to stop hearing our inner voices. We start, we stop hearing these things. But for me, the reality is not so much that I don't want to build relationships because I enjoy having, um, you know, relationships with people, but there is no world in which there is any human that will ever touch the way in which I feel about myself. Mm. You know, so for me, if it's a matter of that relationship building process, well, you just made this person mad. Yeah, well, maybe they're a fucking bitch and you've dealt with them (laughs) for the last 10 years. Like, maybe. Right. You know, and so... I'm not going to say I'm not arrogant, but I'm just saying like, you know, there is a line <laughs> that is drawn in the sand. Um, and I think that's where for me, that term of serve the patients and educate the caregiver, it's not serve the patient, educate the caregiver. And I hope everyone feels good about themselves. Yeah. You know, is that yeah. you're exactly right is, uh, so I, I think what the challenge becomes in our industry, when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about burnout, we're talking about a lot of these things, listen to all of the variables we've been talking about for the last hour. Okay. Now we say, okay, I am a relationship building person. I have tried to be in this GP. I've been working in this setting for the last couple of years. You know, I've had a good relationship with Mrs. Jones or whatever. And then when one thing goes to shit and Mrs. Jones is like, well, you and this and this, and they just start falling apart. It's all falling apart. Yeah. They just cut you down and it's, you are a bad van. I'm going to sue and and it's just, you just get your heart yanked out because you're this relationship building person. And it's all, that's why when I think we talk about fulfillment, so much is that you know the ideal team player in our setting is someone who is fulfilled by serving the patient like that is the ideal team player mm-hmm. um, as soon as you start to make that transition into variable three serve the patient educate the giver and help everyone feels well like and good and happy about themselves that's where the toxicity lies mm-hmm. because you start to allow in emotional manipulation you start to allow financial manipulation i've spent this much money here and i should have special treatment we just had a lady just last night where she was like you know i've i'm spending thousands of dollars i shouldn't have to be able to wear a mask in the lobby and it's like how are those two things even related to one another <laughs> you know like you know what i'm saying but it's like yeah. you, you start to have these experiences <laughs> where doesn't exempt you from public safety rules ma'am <laughs> right 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 the pandemic leaves because you have money and it's like well that's kind of exists but anyway uh so the but the um but again you know what it comes back to is my fear ultimately in the industry is that if we have more professionals entering into the industry that have a high anthropomorphic bond with animals in general and their patients there is an opportunity for emotional and financial manipulation that should not exist when we're serving the patient educating the caregiver you know it goes both ways i i would argue that it can accelerate it one of one of two ways yes absolutely it has the potential to make people more prone to that level of manipulation but also it could when it is coached the right way can get it can really edify the idea of being essentially the voice of the patient. Yes. It yes. can go both ways because like, I really care 
about this animal. Like I, to a point, I'm, I, even more than the generation before me, I see it more anthropomorphized than them. Yeah. Therefore, it's my duty to serve that patient even better. Like, kind of don't care what the caregiver has to say about this. It's my job to speak on behalf of this patient. The problem, though, is we're not teaching people how to do that. We're just throwing them into the fire, and then all they hear is the barking from the caregiver, and they forget that, that who they're actually there to serve. No, I don't, I don't disagree that you have the opportunity as a high anthropomorphic bond uh, veterinary professional to uh, attach to the idea of serve the patient. It's how much does it negatively impact your overall emotional state or self-worth in doing so. So like for me, I, I look at it as a matter of uh, uniformity. So whether the humans, uh, the caregivers who come in, whether they have a high spectrum or low spectrum alignment, we should be serving that patient uh, equally among all of them. So there's never, in my, and again, it's just my perspective, there's never really a scenario where we're going to serve that patient better. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that if you are more on the side of, and I don't, I don't want to say ex exclusively single out relationship building, because I know that was just kind of what we talk about in this particular context. But if we're focusing on relationship building as a variable to the servitude of patient care, mm -hmm. um, I think that inevitably that is a, a flawed, and this is just my perspective, I think that's a flawed line to go down because it provides the opportunity for emotional attachment, mm -hmm. whereas the respect of the human-animal bond and saying, I am going to serve this patient as if it is a high, spe high spectrum household uh, or a low spectrum household, but I'm gonna serve this patient to the best of my abilities and to the furthest extent the caregivers are willing me to do is uh, functionally more objective in our servitude than the relationship building side that would have the opportunity for emotional development. So yeah. I, don't, I don't disagree. But what, I, but what I'm saying is that the, um, what is the fact that we are not coaching where to put that emotional attachment and when we have people that are highly altruistic, we have a uh, oh, so professionals. professionally highly altruistic, right. highly empathetic, yes. highly soft skill focused in communication yes. and stability. Yeah. I, we have a lot of attention to detail, but like very, very few people are high decisive. That's why they stand out so much. Yeah. Like generally speaking from a population's perspective, a lot of people that are empaths, but we're not teaching them what to do with it. So what I'm saying is that if you teach them what to do with it and focus it exclusively On towards the, the patient exclusively towards being the voice for the patient and speaking to the caregiver on their behalf, you're not creating an emotional attachment with the caregiver. You're creating an emotional attachment with the patient. And if you really understand quality of life and how all of that works, there really shouldn't be a whole lot of barriers between you and saying the thing that has to happen or the thing, the, the reality of what it is because you're speaking on behalf of the patient because you care about that patient, not about what the caregiver's thinking about it. I see what you're saying. So rather you're basically relationship building with the patient instead of relationship building with the caregivers. Yes. Fundamentally. Yes, which we do around here, and I don't know if we necessarily recognize that, but we do it through process. I, 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 uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to recognize that, like you said, we have a very high altruistic professional uh, professionals within the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I, I definitely agree with you that if there's a way that we can get them to focus on patient servitude, but I think where we have gotten into a dangerous place is the statement, um, I could care for this patient better than the caregivers can. 
Oh, no, that's not what I, I, I think. I'm. If I said that, I misspoke. That's not what I meant to say if that's what I said. What Maybe I, I'm misunderstanding. What am I? What am I trying to say, Burris? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you can you jump in the middle? <laughs> we're we're speaking uh, high theoretical at the moment. Yeah. Uh, um, are you saying that we're not training those high empaths to to educate properly? No. Are you saying that we sh- they should be placing it on the patient? They should be developing that patient relationship. So what I'm. What I'm trying to say, and I'm, I'm doing a poor job of it, so I apologize to both of you, is um, we're not teaching people, and I, I this probably applies even outside of this profession, we're not teaching people what to do when they care about things. Okay. They're not, yeah. I'm not, we're not teaching you what to do with an emotional investment into anything. So what happens is we put people into a high emotionally volatile circumstance and they're like, well, I have this other ammunition of I care and I'm going to apply it to the thing that's loudest and it's the person. Now, what I'm saying is you can then take that ammunition and you can aim it somewhere else and you're going to say, nope. Now, I'm not saying that caregivers aren't a part of the equation. I'm not saying that I'm going to care for this patient better than this caregiver. But what I am saying is that I'm going to utilize my emotional attachment to every animal that comes in to defend them more effectively. Or not maybe defend isn't, speak on their behalf. I've seen, I've heard of that going more poorly though. Like on Not One More Vet, a lot of, a lot of the posts are just very... Emotional. You post on it because you're emotional. Okay. And there's a lot of people who very much beat themselves up because I should have saved this patient because I, I should I I am a murderer is one of the more recent ones that I heard. I am a murderer because I missed this and I didn't get this for this patient. Hmm. So I think that is a very unhealthy amount of attachment that they have. An emotion that they have dumped on that patient. And when you're getting that much emotion towards your patients, I think you are a lot more liable to having a lot of mental health struggles and lasting in this profession. So So then there should be some amount of disconnect if you're a highly emotional person. I just don't know how you should get there where you should put your emotions. (laughs) You you know, if you have that much emotion, you have to put them somewhere. Well, that's what I'm If you're unhealthy putting it on the patient, then that's one thing. If you're putting it on the caregiver, that's also unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. So then if like, how do you guys explain it to caregivers like that? You Like how it is that you care enough to actually do this job? Because newsflash, this shit's hard. And it's not like <sighs> there's no, yeah. you know, you, like we say it all the time. It's not like we're doing it for the money, clearly. Yeah. So then, because yeah. to me, it's like, well, clearly there's some level of an emotional investment in this whole thing. I care so much that I'm going to fucking do this. But, well, I think that's what it is, is that whenever but, but that's what, challenged, but, it's But how do you define that? Like, how do, you, how do you define how it is that you care? And to me, it's, well, I care, for, I care about the patients. It's not like you don't have emotional ammunition to utilize. You're just more targeted with it. Yeah. And if you don't know how to be targeted with it, I think it just generally is going to go towards the loudest entity and you're going to try and quell all of the emotional and financial burdens of somebody else because they're barking down your neck. And when in fact, it's that's not your responsibility. That's not where you should be putting that. You should be putting that behind the patient. So the question is, how do we navigate that? How do you define it? 
because you guys do it. You already know how to navigate it. You already know that it exists. But if I'm an outsider and I'm listening to the you know two people that have worked nights and one survived it for over a decade and one didn't think she could do it at all and is succeeding in it directly out of vet school, how do you define how to actually use that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a, a lot of it is, like I said, for me, I, at least for me personally, I don't, know, I don't know about you, Rhiannon, but I, I think the the biggest thing for me when it comes to that emotional intelligence is just knowing what I have to give. I, I think I think that's what it is, is that knowing, maybe not even necessarily knowing myself well enough or knowing my emotionals well enough, but just knowing where I draw the line in that attachment within that relationship. So a lot of it goes just a few minutes ago, we talked about relationship building. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think, you know, how do I do it or how do I define it? Um, I think it's really, you know, for me, it's a matter of acknowledging that the only reason why I'm here is because I care. Like that's it. I'm, I don't, I don't care to go on the emotional journey. I don't, I don't care to hear about a dog you had 10 years ago. I don't care to hear about what your mom thinks. You know, I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you don't like me. Mm -hmm. So for me, the where I sort of draw that line is just more on I'm here. I'm doing the job because I care to do it. And for me, it's just racking up a high score. I want to be the best at this job as humanly possible because I care to be the best at this job humanly possible as defined by my own standards. Mm -hmm. So it's not defined by someone else's standards because they're their definition of a high score may be different. That's actually why I like a lot of board games uh, like Scythe is one of them where you have the opportunity to win the game 10 different ways. Mm. It's, oh, well, you know, yeah, we're all playing pinball, but we might just actually be playing a different machine. We're all trying to rack up a high score for a different reason. So for me, how do I do it? It's a matter of defining how much do I have to give and where am I putting those efforts? And a huge part of those efforts is in showing up. You know, and being like, yep, odd hours, after hours, crazy hours, long hours, whatever it is, I'm here and I'm doing it because, again, that's how we do it. I am here to help for that reason. So I'm going to I'm going to yes. I'm going to give you something to think about while I get Burris's answer yes. be for, to the same question. But um, you didn't just tell me why you care. All you just told me was how. Yes. And I'm not saying that that isn't important, but what I'm saying is you gave me a bunch of things that you don't care about. Yeah. You had a process of elimination to get down to something, yeah. but you didn't define what that something was. And this is the, you know, this is kind of an intuitive sort of yeah. definition. But, but the reason that I'm challenging you on it is because I bet there's a lot of people that feel it in their gut, but they don't know what to do with it. And they don't have the willingness or the gumption to say, I actually don't care about that thing. They can't go through the process of elimination. So they just care about everything because they can't scrub the things off because the thing that's at the bottom of it isn't defined. When it's not defined, I can't justify the decision of saying, I don't care about all of that other stuff. We have to define it. We have to give somebody something to hold on to. How so, do you define so it? So define why. Yeah. Why do you care? Mm. What do you got, Burris? Oof. God, I'm in just loving this right now. <laughs> I I don't know. I need like 
four beers and a night to process that one and then come back with an answer or something. Because, like, right now, off the cuff, I'm not going to get to why do I care. We're writing sequels. I like it. Yeah, right. (laughs) But am I... Okay. No, I I get it. I get it. Do you know where I'm coming from? No, I think think ultimately um, the answer comes into your individual um, identification of fulfillment. Yes. So what, what ultimately, what do you find fulfilling is really the question is not just why do you do this, but I think, um, because we're all going to be fulfilled by different things. And I think that's where we talk about, you know, from altruistic to economic to all these different types of things is, is I think that's ultimately what the answer is for each of us. And I think that's part of the reason why I enjoy the power of the tricore is because in a very objective way, it talks about what our motivators are, at least in some capacity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at least it, 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 it entertains the beginning of the conversation to think about those things about ourselves. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to fulfillment is why do I do it personally? Um, I don't know. There's probably a young boy in there somewhere who wants to just help animals. You know, I'm sure that's how it started. You know, I mean, shit, my mom just posted 10 photos of me on my birthday and every one of them was holding a picture. And Kendall was like, I didn't know you liked animals that much. And it's like, well, that's, I mean, pretty much how it starts, you know, is, you know, I think we all want to, you know, at least for me, my perspective is, I think, uh, you know, the why is serving the greater good. The why is, you know, leaving a legacy of helping people. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different whys in there, but I think ultimately it's a matter of creating an environment where we have shared fulfillment. I think that's why, you know, and I think that probably changed from when I went into veterinary school to when I came out to when I got my first job to when we transitioned to ownership. Um, I think the context of the why has changed a little bit, but ultimately I think it's a very self-serving value of fulfillment. Like how am I going to be fulfilled by doing this next thing? Um, And that gets challenged every single day. That gets challenged every single time we go to work or we're at home or with family or whatever it is. But I think as we mature through our lives, I feel like the why naturally has to change because our fulfillments are going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's okay. I think that's why I, I don't see any issue for people who are like, I'm sorry, but I just need to be selfish. It's like, that's like actually totally cool. Like mm-hmm. gaining fulfillment is a very, very selfish endeavor. But the, the real goal in life is to find a way in which you can be selfish selflessly you know, is saying, how is it that I can do this thing to serve myself, but actually do it in a way that helps some greater good. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately for me is the why it's this trying to get towards a very fundamental place in the world that um, I'm doing something at which I enjoy, but it's at the servitude of others. Um, I think ultimately that is the why you know, uh, to come off the cuff. I like it. (laughs) I just really wanted to push that a little bit because, um, not to sell Molly out, but she told me that you told her that you thought that your assessment was wrong. Yeah. I mean, there are certain parts too. I'm, and I, I just and don't I, agree. To me, that's... And the, I took it again. I, I that's, know. That's what keeps getting said. Well, take it again and you'll see. No, nope. I took it again after and I think it got more wrong. We did, right. We went through that part of the experiment and I'm not going to say that it is right or wrong. Some parts are very accurate. So what I want to do, because that to me, like the, the, what I think if I remember correctly and I'm really pulling from the archives here is that your values index was really just vanilla. Like it was like all of them. 
like all all seven of the values were like with within or close to the standard deviation of like yeah those are motivating like i can see the value in them but okay. for my, my myself and i definitely coached myself into this after starting that way set oh shit seven years ago oh boy i'm 30 um was i'm now high low on everything in terms of values I can absolutely tell you why I show up here every single day. (laughs) I know exactly why. Um, And part of it's taking that intuition and making it real. So I want to know from you what you think is wrong. Because if it is, maybe that's just your intuition saying like, hey, like, let's just be honest here. Because we've debriefed twice on them. And both times I was like, Burris, tell me who you are. (laughs) It's just like, yeah. I'm not going to be able to do it off the cuff. No, like we're not going to do that right. Like, we are not doing that right no, now. That was the yeah. four beers dinner, yeah. then three pieces of paper. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's the sequel. So if you're willing to do the sequel, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think it's a pretty good stopping point, though. I I, I, I do want I, I do have I know it's we're getting a little bit long, but these are starting to get longer, yeah. so everybody can deal with it. Um. I want to know, because uh, podcast episode 30 was yourself, which was 30-some ago and a year and a half ago at this point. Um, if you could tell that Rhiannon anything, what would you tell her? That you're actually going to graduate? <laughs> <laughs> that you can do the job? Like, you, you just keep do it going and you will do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll be okay. I like it. That's all I wanted. Because there's somebody out there that's listening to this that's in third year vet school, fourth year vet school, and is just like, I'm bashing my head against the wall. It ends. It gets better. You're right. Right. (laughs) You find what niche works for you. It's probably not what you first thought. Yeah. Awesome. What do you think, Carlo? I think it's good. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you to you both. I'm really glad that we were able to set up a sequel for this. Yes. I will warn everybody that if if they've made it all the way to the end, we will be drunk (laughs) for that sequel. I'll have to put a little asterisk in the title. Yes. Yes. Um, But yeah. Yeah. I guess with that, uh, you can go ahead. You you don't get to do outros very often anymore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, guys. All right. Thanks for tuning in for another podcast today. We'll catch you next time.